0: Here we come, a wassailing, From the band The Volcanics, courtesy of High Tide Recordings. That's what you're hearing right now on the opening of this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It is Monster Kid Radio. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. This episode is going to be going out either late Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day. Or if you don't celebrate, December 24th and December 25th. But because of that, we're going to be playing some Christmas surf Music. High Tide Recordings hooked me up. So you're not just going to hear this song by The Volcanics. You're going to hear some other music throughout the entire episode. I'm excited about this. I'm super excited about the episode as well, because I'm going to be talking about one of my absolute favorite TV shows, with Stephen D. Sullivan. We're going to catch up with Steve, see what he's been up to, talk about what kind of writing projects he's got in the works, what you can pick up right now, what you can read of his, and what he's got coming up in the future. And we're going to be talking about the TV show, The Sixth Sense. No, no, not the I See Dead People movie. This is a TV show that came out in the early 70s, starring Gary Collins. I'm a huge fan of this show and I'm going to talk to Steve about how I first discovered the show. He's been a fan of the show as well. So we're going to talk about the show itself and then briefly talk about Episodes 1 and 2 and if you guys and gals and everybody else like this, maybe Steve and I will talk about more episodes of The Sixth Sense in future installments of Monster Kid Radio. But that's not all we have this week. Of course we've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. That's coming up. It's a special one because, well, You can probably guess this TV show wasn't covered in Famous Monsters, but I don't want to spoil it. So stay tuned for that. Plus, Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. We're nearing the very end of Ultraman with the Beta Capsule Review. There's still a little bit left to go, but Mark is just knocking it out of the park once again. Man, you know what? Every time he sends in a segment, I just want to stop everything I'm doing and go watch an episode of Ultraman. And... Actually, I think I will do that as soon as I get done putting this episode together. And in order to do that, well, we have to get to this.
1: I am Dr. Lee
2: Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Steven D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game.
1: This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen. Plenty of unexpected chills.
2: Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com.
1: I do hope you've enjoyed your visit.
2: Please come again and
1: remember the Chamber is always waiting for its next victim.
2: Everybody's on their way to see the magic Christmas tree. It's a new family motion picture about a talking Christmas tree. All right, boy, turn the ring and say the magic words. Rimbum, carinoom, Oh. Hey, how do
3: I know if this is full so grown? Oh, I'm full grown all right. Who did that? Why, I did. You asked a question of me, didn't you?
4: Trees can't talk.
3: Well, don't be
2: silly. If trees can't talk, then how can I answer you? Of course I can talk. Now- and to add to the fun, there's a happy witch. You'll want to see the greedy giant. The runaway lawnmower. You'll want to see how Santa Claus is captured. See the magic Christmas tree.
3: Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. An extremely bright light flashing over Tokyo heralds the appearance of transforming monster Zaragus in the 36th episode of Ultraman, Don't Shoot, Arashi. Despite the title, Arashi, who admits to getting all fired up when he sees a monster, zaps Zaragus with a direct hit from his spider shotgun. The beam has no effect, and what's more, the creature partially blinds Arashi with another light burst. The science patrol unleashes a deadly VTOL attack but watches in amazement as Zaragus resuscitates, more furious than before. The Defense Force orders the SSSP to suspend operations, touching off a debate at headquarters, which is interrupted by an emergency call. Zaragus has a group of youngsters trapped at the Children's Center. The Science Patrol rushes to help, and although under orders to not engage with the monster, Arashi shoots Zaragus with the QX-gun to defend Hayata and the kids blinded by the creature. True to form, the monster adapts to the attack, and Arashi is suspended from the SSSP for disobedience. After visiting Hayata and the children in the hospital, Arashi goes rogue, commandeering a VTOL to take on Zaragus. As the Science Patrol urges Arashi to reconsider his actions, Hayata, listening to the radio transmission, staggers outside to become Ultraman. But when even he is blinded by Zaragus, only Arashi can deliver the decisive blow, though doing so could cost him his career. Don't Shoot Arashi gives the marksman of the Science Patrol a meaningful and complex moment in the spotlight. Actor Sandayu Dokumamashi makes the most of it. Throughout the series, he gives Arashi aggressive and humorous notes while serving as the perfect foil to Ide's clowning. And that's all on display here, with the added depth of the struggle he faces when being ordered not to fight. Dokumamashi does a wonderful job, especially in the final scene, in which he enables the viewer to see that while Arashi is brave to a fault, He is also humble, and in that regard, is truly heroic. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Manske reporting.
2: Santa sets up a fantastic automatic toy factory on Mars. Martian leader battles the Wicked Bodar in a desperate effort to save Santa, the wise man of Mars, 900 years old, the battle of the toys, when Martian kids and Earth kids join Santa to battle the bad guys of Mars. space age fun, you'll be out of this world when Santa Claus conquers the Martians.
4: Monster MonsterKid Radioheads, this is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are talking about the 70s TV program, The Sixth Sense. It was never featured in FM, but I did find an article about a show with sixth in its title. So for today, that is close enough. In FM 54 from March of 1969, we find a two-page, six-photo article entitled The Men Behind the Monsters. Hollywood's Ghost Makeup Man. Let's see how this connects with our sixth theme for today. Hollywood's Ghost Makeup Man is very much alive. We're talking about the versatile John Chambers, who earned his title of ghost for the many makeups he created for other makeup men and department heads of the major film and television studios in Hollywood. Universal, MGM, Columbia, Paramount, These are a few of the studios which have employed the spooky services of Mr. Ghost. Chambers originally built artificial parts of the human body for the United States Army and Veterans Administration, which he claims was his basic training for the work he now does. After his stint with the Army, John Chambers made the hopeful trip to Hollywood to be discovered, and NBC Television Studios was his first employer. While at NBC, chambers worked his way to the head of the NBC makeup department then went on to other major projects with the motion picture industry his creations include the martians in the three stooges in orbit likenesses for the human duplicators and thriller and outer limits makeups of fantasy and horror in the sixth finger episode of outer limits john created a series of transformations for actor david mccallum According to Chambers, each phase of the transformation was modeled in clay over life mask of the actor. Actual modeling time was approximately 24 hours per head phase. When the modeling had been completed, individual molds were made for each phase. When the molds are ready, a special foam rubber formula is poured into the molds and cured in an oven for 24 hours. The result is a flesh-like material which will give with each expression of the actor's face, allowing complete freedom but now the real work begins. Such an intricate foam appliance takes nearly three hours to apply to the actor's face. First, the appliance is set in place. Then the loose edges are fastened down with spirit gum. The edges are blended carefully with a solvent, and raw latex rubber is applied to cover the edges completed. For the Outer Limits episode, actor McCallum had to report to makeup every morning at 430 This was necessary in order to be ready for the shooting of his scenes as the creature. Chambers uses a special castor oil-based makeup to cover the foam rubber appliances, then regular grease paint for highlights. Of course, constant retouching is necessary during the shooting session as heat builds up from the lighting, closeness of the appliances, etc. The blended edges often lift from the perspiration of an actor and the entire procedure may have to be repeated if repairs are not possible. If the schedule demands, an actor may have to wear appliance makeup for a full day. The makeup man must be with the actor at all times for repairs. As was the case with David McCallum, the actor had to undergo this grueling makeup for six entire days. A real Superman, despite the physical torture, they couldn't make him say, Uncle. However, Chambers explains that not all appliance makeups are as intricate as the McCallum job. Sometimes he creates nose tips, eye tabs, pouches under the eyes, chin pieces, or pointed ears. However, the same basic principles are used in the creation of these smaller appliances, In likewise the special castor oil base makeup is used for covering. John Chambers is a member of good standing of the Society of Makeup Artists, which is a testimony of his skills. The SMA is a select group of Hollywood's top makeup men who, like Chambers, have earned the great privilege of belonging to the organization. Somato prosthetist is the title given Chambers while he was in service for the US Army, but Hollywood's finest makeup men call him talented. There is no question that John Chambers is one of the great men behind the monsters. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more soon. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios.
2: It's like living a storybook adventure, beyond your wildest imagination. From the North Pole of Fantasyland comes a feature-length fable with the most enchanting characters in the whole wide world, headed by the white-whiskered fellow who's the granddaddy of them all. Now, a magic motion picture transports you to an over-the-rainbow land, past the doors of Santa's towering castle and the strange, mysterious, all-seeing eyes into a fantastic crystal laboratory filled with weird and wonderful secrets no one has ever seen before. You'll see them all, and you'll discover how Santa can watch every child on Earth and every good or bad thing they do. Now meet Merlin, the wizard of wizards, the miracle man of the ages. Two for the show. Away we go. Hurry, Mr. Merlin. This is no time to play horses. Come face to face with the devil himself. A mischievous demon determined to mess things up as much as he can. It's yours. Nobody saw so you take it, Lupita. They have more and they won't miss it. What does one little doll matter? Don't you see? Leave it to that devilish trickster to sidetrack Santa up a tree. Watch the jolly hijinks of Santa Claus as he decides to fight fire with fire. Oh ho, a cannon! Ah, Ouch! You won't want to miss the entertainment wonder of the ages. The treat of a lifetime for anyone who has ever believed there really is a Santa Claus. Donald's day and Santa Claus hasn't come.
3: Sleep now, darling. Sleep now and you will see. Maybe when you wake up, you'll find it, darling.
2: You'll see more wonders than you can wave a wand at as a dazzling panorama unfolds before your startled eyes. Sunday matinee only at a theater near you. <laughs>
0: Listeners, we're doing something a little bit different right now. However, if you're listening to the podcast, you might not notice if I don't tell you. But I'm going to tell you anyway on uh, the off chance that affects how the final edit comes out. Steve and I are doing our recording as normal, but we're also live streaming it to Twitch. So every once in a while, we may be referring to the viewers as opposed to the listeners. Don't worry, we're still talking directly to you. I mentioned the man Steve. It's Steven D. Sullivan coming back to Monster Kid Radio, fresh off of... Finishing up a story that should be coming out here very soon, a Christmas themed story. Yep. How are you doing, man? I'm
1: doing great. It's the story is called The Doll in the Window, and it's a Cushing horror story, and it is coming out at midnight on December 23rd. I have a oh, look at that. Yeah, I have a tradition of doing a Cushing Christmas story every year that I've been doing, I don't know, six years or more now. And this is the new one. So. Wrote it yesterday, edited it yesterday and this morning, and put it up on the site to be released on the 23rd, which is two days from when we're recording this. About the same time, this will be coming out on audio, right?
0: There is a good chance that by the time you are listening to this, dear listener, uh, you will be able to go directly to sdsullivan.com or cushinghorrors.com to find the new Christmas story. And are the older
1: stories available as well? They are. They're all still up on Excellent. pushinghorrors.com.
0: Steve, it's been a while, man. I mean, we interact a lot online. We're friends. We chat on Facebook. Yeah. And you're one of the most vocal people on the stream whenever we do something on Twitch, like we're doing right now. right?
1: Uh, <laughs> it's very weird to be talking on, on this and not actually typing on the Twitch screen right at this point. Right?
0: <laughs> Whereas I'm monitoring everything because I want to make sure nothing screws up. So I've got multiple windows going. I still need that second monitor someday. So uh despite the fact that you and I have been chatting a lot, you haven't really been interacting with the Monster Kid radio audience at large because I haven't had you on the show. What's new in Stephen D. Sullivan world?
1: What is new in my life is well obviously that story, but I also just finished up on my site the free serialization of my second Frost Harrow novel die with me so that just started and i i'm about to start the third one which means for a chunk of the last month i was working on doing a light edit on those the just for a little backstory i originally wrote these stories around 1996 and they were published online in 1999 and have spent the intervening years in limbo. At one point, I thought I was going to rewrite them, bring them up to date, and finally, I just decided I'm going to re-release them as if as they were when I first wrote them 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now, and just keep them in the the end of the 1990s, the uh, around the turn of the millennia. So, what I'm doing is I'm taking all of the original stories, and there's six of them. And they're all short novels, 35 to 40,000 words. They're like the length of a Hardy Boys novel or a Nancy Drew or something like that. They're something you could read on a subway while you were commuting or something like that. I mean, now it may be audiobooks. But back then, you know, it's funny how much technology has changed in in that time. It's, it seems like a short span of time, and yet everything's very, very different. Anyway, so I'm taking those, and I am doing – light edits on them to correct obvious errors. They're more or less the way they were in 1999. Does that make sense?
0: It does make sense. And so basically all I'm hearing is you're updating them and that you're going to make sure in the first chapter, everybody has a reason why their cell phone doesn't work. Right. Okay. <laughs> Although they
1: do have cell phones. They have cell phones, so they have CD changers, but the cell phones are the size of bricks, Right. <laughs>
0: Yeah right. <laughs> they're like weapons, you know.
1: Right. Yeah. You know. It, it's funny. One of my friends was reading one of them recently, and he was like, "When is this taking place?" Because people are talking about compact fluorescent lights, like they're real new things. I'm like, "Well, if you look right at the top of the <laughs> thing, it says 1997 November."
0: <laughs> gotcha.
1: So yeah, so they're all set uh, in 1997 or 1998. Okay. Okay. I really enjoy them because they they're fast reads. They're really fast. The chapters are short. They're punchy. A lot goes on. And it's very, very different in a way than the way I write now, although the way I write Atomic Tales is a little closer to that. And that's the other thing I did recently. I actually worked ahead. I knew this was, I was going to have to edit these two books, so I'd worked ahead on Atomic Tales. So we've got a whole bunch of Atomic Tales in the pipeline, too. And I know you did eight of those recently, right? So they're... Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's four more that you'd be sharing on monster kid radio if the people want it. So they should let you know, let me know, let us know. Let's
0: yeah. I've gotten good response. I've gotten good response. So. Cool.
1: Yeah. Christopher Mim loves doing them and I love doing them. And the actors and actresses that are working on them are just amazing. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. And the, the final thing I'm working on is I stopped working on this to, Do those other two things I just mentioned, and that is I am working on the book Werewolf's Curse, and I'm about halfway through it now. And I've hinted about that before, but I've never done kind of the full press release that this is this book and it's licensed of this character and people have been paying attention. They probably know, but I'm not going to like blab the names about it right now until I have enough done that I know when it's coming out and I can get a a solid release date. And and then everyone will go, ooh, cool, or, ah, why is he doing that?
0: I know what it is, and I think this crowd is going to go, ooh, cool.
1: Yeah, I'm very happy to be working, back working on it, and uh, we'll probably dive right back into it as soon as the holidays are over, maybe even right after Christmas. So we'll see.
0: That's cool. I'm glad you're keeping busy, man. Too busy, man. If you didn't have so much on your plate, I'd ask you to come over and help me unpack. So, you know, you're saving grace, I guess.
1: So that's what I've been up to. And I just published all my uh, – if you go to stselvan.com right now, you'll actually see I just published a whole month's worth of mini-reviews for November.
0: Well, as always, link in the show notes every time somebody's on the show. And if they have any kind of web presence whatsoever, I make sure there's a link there. So – Make sure you check out monsterkidradio.net to follow the links, or just go straight to stsullivan.com yourself. You'll find it, and you'll find all of Steve's stuff, links to his books, his blog, his reviews, and everything else he's up to.
1: Are we going to do Classic 5? Not yet. All
0: right because when we set this up earlier, you were like, I got to talk about invaders from Mars. Oh, so yeah, I'm going right. to, You know, we're, we're going to talk about invaders from Mars for a few minutes. I know it's one that you've wanted to talk about on the show as well. I hope you understand the reason why I had Chris is because he and I've been talking about it for years right. and, and, and all that. But you said you had a personal story or connection to the film as yeah, well. It's not Last a week on the show, huge personal story,
1: about. but I, sure. I first saw invaders from Mars in one of the uh, famous Orson Welles Theater, Cambridge Science Fiction Marathons, which is the, the Boston area science fiction marathon, which extends back into the, the early 90s, 1970s. And I went to two of them, I think probably in 78, 79, based on what girlfriends I attended them, with them. I don't remember which of the two I first saw Invaders from Mars. But when you're in a theater, trapped in a theater for 24 hours... Watching science fiction, fantasy, and horror movies. It's one of the coolest things in the world, except, of course, you come out of it completely brain fried. <laughs> and my memory is that it was fairly late at night, like probably started around one in the morning when Invaders from Mars came on. And I'd never seen it before. This is the late 70s, so it's all 35 millimeter, gorgeous prints. And it was just the coolest thing. I'd seen pictures of the brain guy in the bubble in famous monsters I think and probably some magazines like that but I'd never seen the film before and it was just a, it was just a wonderful experience and so I would urge everyone to to watch it to see it it's kind of a wonderful sci-fi fantasy film and I love the ending too although I haven't seen the the British ending but if it's as Chris described it I'm like well jeez I don't really need to see that but right being a completist, of course, I do need to see that.
0: It's weird. It sounds like a reverse situation of Night of the Demon where the British version of Night of the Demon tried to keep it a little bit more ambiguous and not focus too much on the monster. Whereas the U.S. version is like, we got to show it. And it sounds like it's almost the opposite with, with *Invasion Invaders from Mars. We're like, well, you know, we can't be so over. You know, we got to kind of explain things away in the British version. Like, ah, no, no, man. Yeah. I love the ending. I love the American ending. Um Yeah,
1: me too. And it's it, great. It's a great ending. To to kind of blunt that just kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Night of the Demon just for the record, I think the British version, which is longer, the longer version is actually a, a much better version and it really I has all too. the same demon footage. I do too.
0: Yeah. But I, I prefer It's got
1: more of the cult and that kind of stuff and it builds the suspense mm-hmm. and you get to know the characters better as well. They're both yeah. versions are really good versions of Night of the Demon, and maybe that's true for Invaders from Mars, too. But I, I still recommend the longer, uncut British version. It just it makes more sense. And it's cooler. It's,
0: yeah, and it's cooler. And you get to hang out in that world just a little bit longer, which, you know, yeah. as long as you weren't given that business card, it's fine.
1: <laughs> I have you know? bought two entire CDs just to get cuts from <laughs> Night of the Demon, Curse of the Demon. And it turned out they're both the same cut, <laughs> you know, and they're rare CDs. So I had to kind of hunt them down on eBay and pick them up. And it's like, all right, I've got this. And it's like,
0: it's and when you great. say CDs, it's... you mean DVDs?
1: No, no, I mean CDs for the score because I love the score. Oh,
0: okay, okay,
1: I love this. I should have said that. We're we're always talking about scores. I love the yeah, score yeah. of Night of the Demon, and I've only ever been able to find the the opening title cut for it. And I, but I bought two different CD collections just to get that and to see if it was, is this maybe a longer one than the other one, but no, they were exactly the same.
0: So. So the composer and see this. I wish listeners could see this. I'm hesitant to try to do it on Twitch because I might be pushing my system. Bottom line is, is that while we're chatting when things like this come up, I try to you know pull up websites, look up for some information, do it on the fly. Soundtrackcollector.com is a great website. I just went and looked up night of the demon, found the name of the composer, Clifton Parker, which I think I probably already knew anyway. And I can look up all the music, all the albums that have cuts from that, film on here or on CD. And according to this.
2: Yes.
0: hmm. So Clifton Parker comes up. It says it's, there's a compilation album, the film music of Clifton Parker that was released in 2005 on CD.
1: Yep. That's I've got that one. That's got a bunch of kind of swashbucklery music and stuff that he did. And the one cut of night of the demon.
0: And I, I don't even see up oh, there. It is right there. The Night of the Demon theme. Yeah, one, three minutes and two seconds of music.
1: Yeah, I spe- uh, the rest of the music's probably
0: <laughs> I good. I spent twenty
1: dollars or more to get that three minutes of music.
0: I mean, you get some music from like uh, his version of Treasure Island, A Sword in the Rose, and a few other things. But man, that's unfortunate that according to this, it's not been released anywhere else.
1: There's one other CD, and it actually has the demon picture on the front of it, and it's filled hmm. with horror mo- movie music. And David Anandale told me about it. He had he had a had that copy, and I was like, "Oh my God, I have to see whether that's different." And it turned out, sadly, not to be different. It's still a pretty good CD. If you're a Monster Kid, I'd recommend looking for the other one. I don't remember what the title of it is, and I'd have to take off my headset to walk across the studio and look at it. So there's one other one. There is another. <laughs>
3: Oh, boy.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Should I do it in full Yoda? Mm.
0: No, no. Okay. We're, we're good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, anyway, man. so sadly that is all that is available so far as I know with the Night of the Demons score.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and that goes along with what I was talking about last week with the Invaders from Mars music. I loved it. So.
1: Yeah, and there's, no, there's mm. nothing out, out there of it. I don't remember.
0: Uh, not that I was able to find easily. Let me go back to soundtrack collector and find out this has got to be amazing podcasting.
1: (laughs) This is why you get to edit it. See kids, this is the stuff you don't hear when Derek and I are not doing this live on Twitch, which I assume is still happening. But my Twitch stream is actually
0: good. We're so good. We got 10 people watching.
1: Awesome. Hi uh, out so there, whoever you are. Type hi in the for, chat room
0: <laughs> Invaders from Mars, according to Soundtrack Collector, has never had an official release. Uh, now, Soundtrack Collector, I don't know who does the updates. I don't know if it's like Wikipedia or what, but according to this site, it's never been released anywhere, which, you know, is unfortunate.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, that's... Just another one of these mythical soundtracks that you and I want. We want Curse of the Demon and we want we oh, want, want everything. Invaders from Mars and we want <laughs> Destination Inner Space,
0: among oh, other things. that'd be amazing, right?
1: Yeah, and the only people that we know that do that kind of stuff, they're like, well, oh, there's no existing scores for it. We can't even re-record some of this stuff. Uh, well,
0: and some of it has been re-recorded. Like Monstrous Movie Music did a bunch of re-recordings of stuff, which is how we have an amazing score for Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, because they did re-recordings, yep. but you know, physical media, unfortunately, we're the exception. Is kind of dying. There's not a lot of money in it. Um, you know, not that it's movie monster, monster movie related, but one of my favorite DVD labels just declared we're done. It's no longer phys- you know, financially viable for us to continue.
1: Which, so, uh, which label, man?
0: Uh, Wild East, and they do. Spaghetti, they're my spaghetti Western guys.
1: Oh, Pummer
0: And uh, yeah, they were just like, yeah, we just, you know, so no long longer financially viable for the amount of time, the amount of people that are involved and how much money we make. We just, and then of course, some of the letters got it. You know, the press release has got to be oversimplified, but still it stinks. Um, right. I, am I, thankful that they did so much and put so much amazing, uh, content out there. So many great DVDs and they were starting to do more Blu-rays too. Um, but yeah, they're they're calling it, you know, no, which
1: probably means they're all going out of print. Which means I don't have them, and they'll all go up in price. And
0: well, to be. it depends on who owns the rights to what. Um, you know, maybe who knows? Who knows right. how it's
1: going to turn out? So. Not I. Anyway, that's that's kind of my my brief invaders from Mars stories i saw it in the orson wells theater in the middle of the night in a science fiction marathon with either faith or melissa i don't remember which year it was but i had different girlfriends the two years that i went uh (laughs) i've always had as you've met my wife you've known that i've always had super cool girlfriends right so uh, kiff is the best of them all all,
0: yeah yeah no she's 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 watching right now right
1: Uh, She's upstairs and has it on. Whether she's watching, I don't
0: know. No, she's pretty awesome. She's pretty awesome. Yeah, she's
1: great.
0: (laughs) Hi, Kev. Anyway. Oh, man. All right. So that was Invaders from Mars, which is a movie that we talked about last week on the podcast with the shadow over Portland's Chris McMillan. Go check it out. Easy to find at monsterkidradio.net. Now that that's out of the way. Let's do a game that we always play every week on Monster Kid Radio. Even when I'm not here, it gets done. It's the classic five. Sometimes we call it a game, an icebreaker. We just call it a way to get used to or get to know, get used to. What am I talking about? To get to know our guests a little bit more. I've got five cards. Theoretically, I don't actually have the cards. They're in a box somewhere. But I've got five cards, and each card has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question on them? Or no wrong answers. It's just a way to get your... Monster Kids talking. Steve, that was a horrible introduction, but I'm gonna keep it anyway. <laughs> Are you ready to play around <laughs> of the classic five?
1: I am ready. Let's let's see if I can do a little introduction for it different than I usually do. Here we ready? go, here we go. It's the classic five.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. All right. So the classic five. Let's go ahead. I've got my database here. Uh, that I'm going to pull some questions from randomly. And who do you prefer as a filmmaker, William Castle or Bert I. Gordon?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. I guess I'm going to have to, uh, darn it. <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to go with Castle because I think his films are generally of a higher quality and consistency than Bert I. Gordon. And he's also got that amazing Ballyhoo that he did with so yeah. many of them. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, I like Earth versus the Spider about as well as any cheap movie. Oh, and I love Birdie Gordon summer. film. That's it's and there are a lot I really like all their films. And in some ways I think Bird Eye Gordon did more monster films than castle, and I really am a monster kid more than a uh, a monster suspense and whatever kid, although I love, you know, suspense and mystery movies too. So, I, I'm going to go with Castle, but Ask me tomorrow and it could be Burt Eye Gordon. That's pretty
0: much where I would come down to. That said, what's your favorite Burt Eye Gordon film?
1: I think it would be Earth versus the Spider. Because uh-huh. I, th- I think that one functions really well end end, to and I think his spider effects are pretty darn good in it. The cave stuff is pretty convincing. It's got the giant spider web and that kind of stuff. Having said that, though, it's been many years since we've been able to see a good print of Amazing Colossal Man. And I really like that one too.
0: Yeah, I do like that one. But for me it, it's Earth versus the Giant Spider. Uh the first attack that we see on screen is brutal and just intense and
1: Yep. Yeah, we get the car crash and we get the dead father and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. Oh man. I really think it it really all came together for him there. And I think his special effects are always About as good as he could make them, given the budget of the film, right? So Mm. sometimes they're a little dodgier, and I think they're pretty solid all the way through Earth versus the Spider, or The Spider, whichever title you care to call it.
0: All right. Let's see. That's two questions. Three. What is your favorite monster in space
1: movie? Alien. And aliens are the cheap answer to that. But that's out of our... No, I mean, it's, it's you know,
0: Aliens 1979, it's still kind of pushing it. I mean, it's kind of closer than, I don't know.
1: Those are amazing monster in space movies. But if you give me a, a minute or two, I'll probably come up with an, another one that's more in, in our genre, in our time. Everyone likes it, which is a lot of fun.
3: Okay. I know, this is
1: blasphemy. Never been totally crazy about the monster design in that. I think it's it's pretty good, and they played it well, and they put it together well in "It's a Terror from Beyond Space." It is, it's a, you know, that or is that the MIM for? <laughs> it's late. <laughs> am I am I giving MIM titles to classic films now? <laughs> so that one occurs to me, and and then I'm thinking that they're oh, here's my favorite space monster, Ghidra. Hey, there, there you go. Gidra, the three-headed monster. I wasn't
0: thinking kaiju, but that's that's a good call. That's a really good call. I've been really thinking a lot about Planet of the Vampires lately, so I'd probably go there.
1: That is a very spooky, yeah. cool film. Not really no, vampires, not. but you know me. No, and it's not. <laughs> but
0: you know, you mentioned right. Alien, and I was thinking, you know, there was three four. Which movie do you prefer, Return of the Fly or the Curse of the Fly?
1: The second one, which is I think Return of the Fly. That's right. Yeah because it's it's a little more in the in the genre of the first one as i i recall i think it's the, the third one that has the the hamster headed man and those kind of things right yeah
0: and you know there's no Vincent Price in the third it's um right
1: and price is in the second one
0: Brian Donlevy in the third one I think so yeah yeah
1: doing one of his angry angry old scientist routines. Which
0: I love. <laughs>
1: yeah, I rewatched Quite a 2 the other day and I actually thought, wow, he's he's actually better than I remember in this. So though he is not he is not my favorite Quatermass, a Mass. andrew Keir. I really love Andrew Keir and uh, Quatermass mess of
0: the Sounds past. good to me. All right, final question that is going to tie in a little bit to our conversation here. Which do you prefer? The Twilight Zone or Night Gallery?
1: Oh, <laughs> oh that's hard to That is a hard choice. See, I love the Twilight Zone, and I realize that the end-to-end of the stories are probably better and more consistent in the Twilight Zone. But I saw Night Gallery as a series first. I'm sure I saw episodes of the Twilight Zone, but I don't think I really knew exactly what they were. And I saw Night Gallery, I think from the start. I may not have seen the original TV movie, but I watched the series and especially the the second season where they introduced me to Lovecraft, which is obviously very important though. I didn't even know who Lovecraft was at the time. All I knew was that there was this thing called Pickman's model that had these really cool yes. goals. Yes. It this great. I don't remember if John Chambers or who designed those, but it's a great looking monster. The painting, is a great painting that in fact that that episode has a series of paintings and, uh, I was, I managed to scrape together the money to get the coffee table book that actually has all of the reproductions of all oh. paintings in it. Oh, it's a dude. wonderful, oh. wonderful thing. Um, and it was because of that episode and that painting and that monster that I actually got to meet Rod Serling in the 1970s during the the show. So <laughs> I'm going to have to go. With Night Gallery, because without Night Gallery, I never would have met Rod Serling. And that was, it's a a great memory to have. You know, even though though I was like 12 or 13 at the
0: time. I uh, am popping over to the IMDb and not seeing who's credited as doing the makeup on that. Uh, So if any listeners know, I'd love to know, uh, because it's some good stuff. Uh, I also prefer Night Gallery, which I know sounds blasphemous. Twilight Zone is more pure Serling. It really is. Night Gallery Studio is a little bit more like, hey, why don't you do this? And how about you do that? And by the way, in the third season, we're going to shoehorn in this other show that you don't know anything about. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, And that is
1: why, if you go to IMDb and you look up the Sixth Sense TV series 1972, the top cast of the series is Gary Collins. And right next to Gary Collins is Rod Serling. And when I saw this the other day, I'm like, what? Really? And I was like, oh, right. We'll get into that. Anyway, yeah, well. meeting Serling was a great thing in my life. Um he was an amazing man. Smoked like a chimney. And during this I I happened to get to see him at he was giving a lecture at the college my dad worked at and they had a meet and greet, I think, before the lecture. So I actually got to do the meet and greet with Ronda Serling, where he stood around and just talked to people and told stories and stuff. And it was marvelous. And I didn't actually get to see him do the lecture. So kind kind of really interesting. And he was a wonderful, very personable man. So, But he's not in the sixth sense. (laughs) Not really. Let's
0: let's go ahead and segue into the sixth sense. And and we'll talk a little bit about the series, but I want to talk about how I first discovered it. And it is because of Night Gallery. What we are alluding to is third season of night gallery came along and it wasn't you know as prestigious as twilight zone it you know the studio was more involved rod Serling's like yeah you know i i guess i just kind of phone in some of these introductions or whatever and that's fine i still love the show
1: rod was not very pleased with the no. net, what the network was doing with night gallery and they really jerked him around and jerked the show around a lot which and is unfortunate the, they, and they insisted that, you know, I know that we all love some of the comedy sequences and stuff. Rod, he did not much like them.
0: No. Um, and, I mean, was, see, and, and I get it. I love the Leslie Nielsen Phantom of the Opera thing. I think that's hilarious.
1: Well, and I think the one that's the, the Carl Reiner is the yeah. guy teaching the Cthulhu mythos in his class. Sure. That's a very funny little bit too. And it yeah. was some, these were written by people like Robert Block and Richard Matheson, some of them. So some of them have, but Rod, Oh, he wasn't having a lot of it. So by the third season, he was not there a lot.
0: So when the show went into syndication, they had Rod shoot some more narration and introductory bits for episodes of ostensibly Night Gallery, but really they're just condensed versions of The Sixth Sense.
1: Right. The way it used to work, as I understand it, is in in order to become a syndicated television show, you had to have, I think it was 100 episodes. It was some kind of arbitrary number like that. And then they could syndicate you. But if you had 99, you couldn't. And because Night Gallery had only lasted three seasons, and some of the seasons were not full seasons either, I think, they didn't have enough episodes. But there was this other show around, The Sixth Sense, that had two seasons and was enough episodes that they could get Night Gallery syndicated. if. They incorporated the Sixth Sense into the Night Gallery. And then you'll love this. The syndicated Night Gallery was half an hour long. The original show was an hour long. Maybe that was why they had almost enough, because maybe they cut every show up into half-hour segments. I don't know. My
0: experience is that, at least what I saw of it this way, because I knew nothing about the Sixth Sense at this point. I didn't know about any of the drama behind the scenes when I saw this on the Night Gallery show. Each episode, they condensed significantly and let Rod Sterling's introduction really carry the weight when it came to making sure we got plot points that they had to cut out for time.
1: That was the theory, but I don't think it actually ever worked.
0: When I watch The Sixth Sense now, obviously I prefer it to the Night Gallery syndication condensed, but when I first discovered the show, watching it on Night Gallery, it was good enough to get me interested So, I mean, it it worked okay, but definitely avoid it if you can and watch it as it's meant to be seen. Thank you to Universal for doing it this way, because it meant I got to see it, but...
1: Yeah, that's a tough call. You know, I'm really glad that you say that seeing it condensed like that made you interested in the original. Sure. Because I started with The Sixth Sense. I saw it from its pilot. Nice. on the television show during its entire run it was must see tv for me i made sure i was in front of the set every every episode to see it and i loved it right so on. for me when they started syndicating night gallery and they stuffed these six cents in episodes in there c- condensed with a, a painting and rod serling doing a little intro in front you know and i don't blame rod for doing that you you go where the money is and well you uh,
0: probably had a contract you probably had to do it didn't have a choice
1: yeah, you know, it's, there's money in it, there's, and it's going to put his other show back on the air, too, right? So there's many reasons for good reasons for him doing it. I don't blame sure. him, but when I saw what they had done, I was like, what in the...
0: <laughs> it's it's not great. It's good enough, <laughs> like I said, to hook me, but it's not great. And what clued me into the fact that it was something different is when I watched it, I saw it the first time, whatever, this is an episode of Night Gallery. Oh, it's a little... Different, but it's Night Gallery and there's Rod. Cool. Next time I watch Night Gallery and there's another Sixth Sense condensed episode. I'm like, did Night Gallery have recurring characters? I don't know. I right. What is this? And then that's what led me into the, down right. the path to discover the show.
1: Right. The Sixth Sense. I don't know that it's ever been syndicated as itself since it first ran in 1972. And until we found this VD set of it, I am not sure that I ever had a chance to ever see it again
0: in terms of syndication that. no but it has played a few times over the years on some of these smaller networks sometimes like up in canada
1: yeah i thought it was maybe on chiller or something like that yeah, at one point something like
0: that, but but only long enough to run like one season you know right like, somebody's got to deal with universal and they're like yeah well nobody's showing this let's show this you know because universal owns the rights to this this is a universal Lic- production
1: licensing for that is very very cheap let's get that
0: yeah if it's that cheap, I want it. I would love to license <laughs> it man, put out an awesome set of this dude
1: yeah stream, Joe, that'd it, be stream great. it oh, it'd be great yeah, look into that would you maybe we can kick kick-started
0: or something <laughs> uh n b c's got their streaming service already set up, I don't know, but anyway, uh now, supposedly this came out of uh, a TV movie that I have gone back and watched uh you know the t v movie's not bad uh forget the title of it, something like sweet. Rachel or something?
1: Oh, I've seen that. I'd, I'd forgotten that that was related. Is Gary Collins in that?
0: No, none of the same characters are in it.
1: Well, I didn't think so. It's so. this
0: TV movie, and this is the 70s. So this is the era of really cool genre TV movies coming out from the yeah, networks, and that's awesome.
1: It's the Dan Curtis era. It's the era that, yeah. you know, yeah. Dan had this huge hit with Dark Shadows and he into the Night Stalker and he mm-hmm. huge of movies, and everyone was doing it. This is a show about ESP. Mm-hmm. And it's a cool show about ESP. I think certainly the best show ever made about ESP. I'll say that right up front. I've never seen better. And rewatching them recently, and I've I've been doling them out. I've rewatched the entire first season, but I just started rewatching the second season. And they're good. Some of them are really good. The first episode of the second season, they're on an airplane experiencing problems, and it's, you know, one of those kind of locked room dramas and it's yeah and it's, it was like how are they gonna get out of this i was really yeah. <laughs> i was really keyed into it i was like yeah this this show had it going on but it, it wasn't treated well by the network they moved it around uh and then of course they cut it up into night gallery.
0: well it was up against things like mission impossible and i mean how do you compete with a, a juggernaut like that
1: yeah, you know, my it, memory is that it was on like Friday or Saturday night, but it's so long ago. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure that uh, you're right. And Mission Impossible was a big
0: thing. Yeah, it was up against Mission Impossible and uh, things like Saturday Night on the mo- at the movies on NBC. Which I mean, back in the '70s, <laughs> that yep. was a big deal. '70s television, man. It's it was a different time, and I watched it was. something. And like- there
1: were a lot of cool, kind of experimental, supernatural TV movies, and this was. Kind of part of that wave, but it never caught on a little bit, but never. Obviously, it got a second season.
0: It got a second season. Uh, a lot of sources say the reason it got the second season is because it got some really good guest stars. You know, Lee Majors uh, turned up in one. Uh, Patty Duke. And to, contrary to popular belief, Trog was not Joan Crawford's final acting bit. It was this show. She appeared right. in an episode. So, you know, you've got these huge guest stars. So you got, you know, Shatner did an episode. You know, you've got a lot of big names here that,
1: yeah, you know, that's the Looking draw. at this, Carol Lindley and John yeah. Saxon. John Saxon is in the third episode. Oh, that episode's uh, great. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was surprised. That's you didn't one of my favorites.
0: One. <laughs> one of my favorite. Well, I wanted to start with the beginning. I wanted to start with the yep. beginning.
1: Yep. That makes good sense.
0: So the the TV movie that it supposedly was spun out of or whatever, it's a good TV movie. Don't get me wrong. It just really doesn't have much to do with this show in terms of characters. Con- you know, the concepts, the vibe maybe is a little bit different, but or the same. But what's whatever. the
1: title of it again, Derek? I don't
0: remember. I'll keep looking it up.
1: It's, got, it's Mary, sweet Mary, or something like that, right? I know I've seen it. And yeah, I th- I've seen I it too. The, the, the through line is that it's one of these supernatural ESP kind of kind of movies.
4: Um, hush, hush, but,
0: sweet Charlotte.
1: No, that's not it.
0: That's not it at all. Why is that even coming up?
1: That is totally not it. That's not it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the that's what one of the, the hag exploitation films. What it's is fun. that?
0: Sweet, sweet know. Rachel.
1: <laughs> sweet, sweet Rachel. There we go. Not, <laughs> not Mary. Sweet Mary. I got the I got the sweet part.
0: <laughs> we both got it wrong. We were both on the sweet. We're good.
1: Sweet, sweet Rachel. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which is um. good. I mean, Stephanie Powers is in it, and she's great.
2: Move down the darkest corridor of the inner mind. ESP is a fact across the comprehensions of reality. Science fiction. Is it? Beyond the shroud of your subconscious. Back. Farther back. And into the sixth
1: sense. Come with me. This show is a a very serious show about ESP, psychic powers, and the setup is that Gary Collins is Dr. Michael Rhodes, and he is a well-respected – he's got a PhD in front of his name – researcher at a major college, and maybe you know what the college was.
0: Well, that opening shot's at UCLA, so it's implied it's UCLA, but I don't think it ever really says.
1: Right. In the early episodes, you actually get to see the setup in the college where they're doing psychic testing with the cards and the rolling dice and all the scientific exploration of ESP that was going on right around that time. So it's a nice look back into that time period, and weirdly or maybe not in some ways the research into ESP has not advanced greatly from them. Then it's still, you know, still predicting the cards, trying to make the dice turn the way you want them and that kind of stuff. And it's a fascinating opening segment that it's not in the entire first season. I don't think, but it's in the first, I don't know, four to six episodes. Maybe
0: it would make sense. You you they would drop one. it Cause it is a little bit yeah. long. So yeah, it
1: is. It is. But so I cool. see why they would do it, but it's also a very cool introduction to what's going on. Very and, cool, and you add, get
0: some har- harps, some awesome harpsichord action every time something ESP happens, which is great. <laughs> Whenever she can predict a card, it's great.
1: There you go. And he, and in the early episode, one of his assistants, whose name is Nancy Murphy, it's really sad that they kind of dropped her as this series went on. She was only in six. When something strange happens, they're kind of called in or become involved somehow to investigate. And he especially, and I don't remember if she's got much aptitude for this, but he actually has ESP. Mm-hmm. He has a number of the kind of standard psychic powers that he's, you know, he can. He has some premonitions, he can read impressions off of objects and that kind of stuff. He is what you would think of as a scientific ESP researcher, because this is not supernatural in song really. It's treated as if it's something that can be scientifically understood in the series. And they go about it very um, really interesting in a very straightforward way. As, you know, it's it's weird to have a, a supernatural series in some sense that's also a very scientific series, but this it's, one is.
0: Yeah, and, and it really walks that line. So I want to I correct myself real quick. UCLA, UCLA is in the TV movie. The library that Dr. Rhodes walks in front of is actually at Caltech. So ah, right, I, I want to yep. just make sure. I you know I, I did screw that up by just skimming Wikipedia while we were talking. So
1: I want to make sure I got that right.
0: Uh, but which yeah, is it's another created...
1: another tie into science because yeah. Caltech is you know the Western MIT. My best my best friend went there.
0: It's a Very really serious approach to yeah. this the concept of ESP extra perception uh, being able to predict future events, pick up vibrations, astral projection, automatic writing, all this stuff is treated so seriously. And that's what drew me in. Yep. You know me. And I've talked about this on the show in the past. And you you know this about me because I love chill so much. I love the idea of there being this, this organization or uh, an academic institute or something that treats these quote-unquote weird events as real and approaches them from a really scientific point of view or or uh, a serious point of view and they don't play it up for laughs it's not oh look at this guy you know it's it's serious sure right. there are disbelievers in the show there are people who are like well dr rhodes are you sure you know but it's still right. never and sometimes there yeah.
1: people make fun of him is, he's the esp guy yeah right, right. Well, why would i listen to him he's the esp guy right But we know as the viewers, that he has ESP.
0: He is the ESP guy. (laughs) He's the guy.
1: Yeah, he's not a fraud. He's not someone that's that's out to to blow himself out. He's seriously investigating all these things.
0: And Gary Collins plays him so earnestly. Uh, I don't know much about Gary Collins in terms of his acting career or, you know, the things that he was into or whatever but he plays I think he did a talk so, show at
2: one point. Yeah. He seems very
0: talk show like, right. Um, right. But he plays it so seriously. And I love that. I mean, he is so earnest. He's even doing some of his own stunts, you know, which. I mean, come yeah. on.
1: He, he's he earnest. And he's charming. And you really, one of the reasons this works is for me, I really believe him. Mm-hmm. I believe what he's selling. It's like, yeah, this guy's got ESP. He can do these things. And of course, because it's a television show, you get to see his psychic impressions of stuff. Right. And it's always interesting, and sometimes it's symbolic. And sometimes, you know, it's. if you were to be a real curmudgeon, you could say, well, in the real world, people that claim they're psychics don't have all the powers that he has. True. And maybe that's true. He doesn't have one of the interesting things about him is he doesn't have huge amounts of all the powers he's not like always right about everything his his hints and the things that he picks up aren't always really useful to him. He's not an omniscient psychic he's a psychic that has just enough to make him look further and struggle to understand and stuff. And that's, that's one of the things that I find really fascinating about him too. It's like, you know, watching this again and and talking about it with you, if psychic powers were real in this world, and I'm not saying they're not, but I'm not saying there are, they are, (laughs)
3: this
1: is how they, this is how I think they would work. Sure. Is the way this guy has them. Yeah. So, you know, but, as someone that's been into this since or before this television show occurred, I know all sorts of ways to fake psychic powers too. Oh yeah, And it's, it's way easier to fake them.
0: Yeah. Oh. Oh. Of course. Um. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Penn and Teller, and you can't be a Penn and Teller fan without knowing this stuff is pretty easily debunkable. <laughs> Because right. they tell you how to debunk it. So yeah. Right. And before exactly. that, the amazing Randy. I mean, you just a right. lot of this stuff is
1: And Houdini you know, before before him. All
0: inspired by Houdini, yeah.
1: Right, exactly. And
0: and, and Yeah, you know, I wish, you know, would it be neat if this kind of stuff was in the real world and and you know, I had ESP or whatever? Yeah, sure. But you know, I'll take the sixth sense. as the next best thing. <laughs>
1: but it's a fantasy series. You know, and, and I there's love weird it. stuff I that happens. It life. When I, you know, when I was a kid watching the series, I made my own car set of card decks and there was, you know, I made a deck of the SP cards and there was, I remember one day, just one day, there was a day when I, I got like 30 of them right in a row. <laughs> so oh, a lot in, in yeah. succession, never could do it before. Never did it since it was like, who knows? How did that work? I don't know.
0: You know, I but, think we all have had you know, I dreamt about this thing happening and then it happened the next day. You know, I think we've all had like those little things happen. And, you know, in this show, Dr. Rhodes is like, well, that's that's legit. Let's look into that. That 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 means something right. or maybe not, but we'll find out. And and that's something else that I love about the show is that he's not just the blind believer. He's willing right. to go in there. And if it's wrong, ah, it's wrong. He just picked it up from this book that he read. You know, yeah, that's not right, psychic, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah, maybe this is actually true, maybe it's not, but we're going to go and find out. And if it's not true, you know, if these are people scamming us or something, we're going to find that out too. And that's that's honestly what makes this character different from a lot of the, you know, not to catch, cast too many aspersions, but from the believers in psychic powers or UFOs or any Bigfoot or any other number of strange things, all right. of which I am interested in. Sure. But every time I watch one of those shows, Kiff is like, why do you hate watching that show? (laughs) And I'm like, because their standard of proof bar is so low. I can't even believe it. So Gary Collins, Dr. Michael Rhodes, his standard of proof is, is higher than a lot of what I see in so-called reality television today. And that's even looking back, you know, it was refreshing in the seventies and it's refreshing now. And because it's a television show, it's a fantasy show. You know that it's true in his world. And it's just a matter of how he's going to figure out what the true parts are and what the are the not true parts and who's lying to him and what's really going on. And in the vast majority of the shows, it turns out in a really interesting and often unpredictable way.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. There, there are some twists coming. I know when you say the sixth sense and you do some research for the sixth sense, you come up with the M Night Shyamalan, whatever the last name is, uh, movie, which he's known for.
1: A movie I actually like. Why he called it that, I'm not entirely sure, but okay. But
0: he's known for the twists, right? Well, this show has twists all the way through. You know. He's picking up this because of that. And is that guy really dead? No, that wasn't a guy. And that was that was a ghost. No, it wasn't. You know, just a lot of these little things that are happening along the way as the show continues. I love it. I, I am immersed in this world. I wish this show went on for years because I would sit down and binge watch the heck out of this beyond the season and a half, basically, that we have.
1: I agree. And, you know, it just occurred to me as we're talking now that one of the reasons I think this show really works is this show is actually a detective show. It's yeah. like a good detective show like Mannix or the Rockford files or something else from the Hawaii five Oh, something else from that era. It's like that, but where the te- detective has a little bit of ESP mm-hmm. as well as his hunches. He's actually psychic. And that is, I think why this show works so well. When it works. And it does. It works in all the episodes that I've rewatched so far.
0: Yep, I agree.
1: And another reason is that it had good people behind it. I don't know the people that are credited as the show creators Anthony Lawrence <laughs>
0: and Samuel <laughs> so I know where you're going but with this, though. So.
1: There the are story
0: editors. <laughs> oh, okay. So you've got one of the big names when it comes to who created some of the most important concepts of the original Star Trek series, DC Vontana. And then you've got somebody who probably regretted working on Star Trek, Harlan and Allison.
1: <laughs> These are serious science fiction people. They they took this seriously, and it I think it really shows in the in the early episodes. They, yeah. I noticed that they they drop off at some point a story it. sure sure but by then i think the show had its aim yeah it once you start
0: the machine you vocals. know it, yeah right uh, but you've you got these two people on there and that's amazing you've got these two big powerhouses and you know tc fontana i'm a huge fan of her every interview that i ever read with her, yeah, uh, her body of work. Was she was amazing. an amazing woman Harlan amazing Ellison, woman. his talent's amazing. He came across as a jerk, and I don't think I ever would ever want to, to meet him, but his, <laughs> his talent is huge.
1: And I met him once, and he was very nice to me.
0: <laughs> I, you know, and I'm sure he was, but, you know, I take issue with some of the things he said about Gene Roddenberry. So, you know, yeah.
1: But his talent is undeniable. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. And wow, that these two people helped steer the beginning of this show. I mean, just that should be enough to get people to watch it,
1: right? I think it really set the helped set the course for the show. Yeah, and it's and it's cool. And you've got you know, as Derek pointed out, the thing that made his brain tingle in Night Gallery. It's like, why is there a continuing character? Because it's a show about a continuing character who does yeah. this.
0: I mean it's not as serialized as some of the stuff we get now because it's the 70s. However, it's still right. the same guy. It's, you know, we're seeing him on another adventure. It's very pulpy that way. And right. I I responded well to that too. There's something about, you know, when we talk about pulp fiction, not the Tarantino film, but just the the genre or the the the, the storytelling type of pulp you know we, we talk about the 30s with lovecraft and howard we talk about new pulp now with people like frank schilderner who's been on the show quite a bit writing stuff like that i would even say some of the stuff that you write steve is new pulp but the 70s pulp has a certain flavor and i love it so much i don't know why i mean i was born in 73 but my memories don't go far that far back i i Consider myself a kid who grew up in the 80s. I'm Generation X. Uh So I was exposed to some of that stuff in the 70s, I'm sure. But when I sit down to watch The Sixth Sense, more so than any other show that was produced in the 70s, when I watch it, I can almost smell the wood paneling on the walls. I can almost feel that almost crunchy... Carpet underneath my feet. <laughs> I can feel all the shades of brown in the couch that I'm sitting in. It's very seventies. And 70s.
1: a Gary Collins tweed suit. <laughs>
0: it makes me feel like it transports me to this era that I probably would not have done very well in. I mean, considering who I am. But for that moment, I feel like I'm there and I'm where I'm supposed to be. And it's just it has that kind of an effect on me.
1: Right. It's very much of its era. It really. It sums it up well, and I think it, in some ways it shows the best, some of the best elements of the, the 1970s. Which yeah. obviously I was, you know, I'm a little bit older than you, and and I remember all this and watching this. It's like, yes, mm-hmm. all these all these sense come back. Yep. Yeah. So it's a great time capsule from the era from the era yeah. too. And as I said, it it's from that era where there were good detective shows on TV in the 70s. I didn't realize it as a kid because I wasn't that into it, but. You know, I've since watched the entire run of Mannix, and Mannix is an amazing, good show. And and all the ones that I I didn't wasn't even that interested in are pretty good. And you mm-hmm. know, Hawaii Five O is a terrific show, and The Rockford Files is I one of the best Rockford shows. Files. I
0: say Files. I was trying to avoid saying it because this, the theme song gets stuck in my head. But uh, I was. <laughs> it's true, though. Rockford Files is it's amazing.
1: One of the best television shows of all time. Yeah, it, it's just yeah. brilliant and end. And this fits right in with all that stuff.
0: We are going to look at the first two episodes and I know we've gone on quite a bit, so I don't want to get too like beat by beat because I want people to watch the show, but at least for these first two episodes and they carry this on through at least, I think almost the entire first season, the, we we see him walking on campus and he goes by a plaque in a building and the plaque is a uh, quote from the old Testament. Uh, It's, He's walking to the parapsychology department. Apparently, this parapsychology department slogan is from Joel two twenty eight: Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. I thought this was really interesting to include and to start the show with a biblical quote, because I know that once we get into the 80s, we start getting into the era of the satanic panic, where anything weird or kooky is a gateway to the devil. Now, I all know, the stuff
1: that we loved in the 70s became yeah. became a gateway to so, hell.
0: And, and I find it interesting that we're opening the show with a quote from the Old Testament. And, you and
1: know, there was it, some of that back then, and that yeah. may have been one of their ways of kind of trying to head it off. Right. And show you that this guy is on the side of the angels and the side of the prophets.
0: Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool.
1: It is. It's very Every cool. Every
0: episode, he's walking through there. We see the different tests going on with the cards and the dice and the harpsichord, which I love. I assume it's a harpsichord. It might have been a waterphone. <laughs> but whatever it is, it's like... <laughs> vroom,
1: it's <laughs> I'll, I'll have to listen when I listen to it again. I, I hadn't even remembered that they completely changed the opening to the show in the second season. Hmm. So have to go back to the first season to see if that really is harpsichord or if it's some other kind of musical instrument that you're loving here.
0: And even the titles of the episodes, I Do Not Belong to the Human World, is the first episode title. Oh, that's an awesome title! Sign me up for that!
1: <laughs> I love it! <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Yeah, and oh. the second one is The Heart That Wouldn't Stay Buried, which oh. is also a terrific title both of us are watching this on french dvds yes the french dvd mostly has the english titles sometimes it doesn't i don't know (laughs) why either
0: i was i was watching that it's like why why is this one in french but everything else is in english but whatever it's the heart that wouldn't stay buried so
1: which is yeah and they're both really interesting sounding titles and and in some sense they sound like they could be part of the night gallery yeah. So you can you can kind of see why they thought this would be a good idea to do, even though I think it was a good idea only in that it kept Night Gallery and Six Sense going to some sense. Yeah. In some ways, they do fit together. Yeah. Or they would have fit to, they would have fit together fairly well if they hadn't then cut them up. Would have been a
0: great block of must see programming. You know. Right. But
1: Night Gallery
3: is
0: even on were at seven. On- yeah, and then the Six Sense is on at eight. You know, just put them back to back, and then yeah.
1: <laughs> I think they were on different networks, though. I think Night Gallery was NBC, and uh, Sixth Sense, I think, was probably ABC. But yeah. I'm not sure because that's a memory from the 1970s. It's a long
3: time ago now.
0: Well, so. let's see. It was up. Yeah, it was ABC that had it. Although they were both produced by Universal, but right. back then Universal wasn't, you know, NBC only. And then yeah. Anyway,
1: right. That was back before all the big companies bought each other up. And now there are only three. Yeah. So
0: anyway, I do not belong to the human world. It's it's in the 70s, and what was one of the big conflicts that we were involved with in the 70s? We were dealing with the fallout of the Vietnam War. And this episode, boom, puts us right in the middle of dealing with a, P-O-O, a POW situation. And right, it doesn't I, bulk. I, it doesn't shy away from it. And I'm like, wow.
1: POWKIA. You know, there's a, a, a guy that's been killed in the war, and and his girlfriend left back home, and— the, his buddy that escaped from the prisoner of war camp that he was killed in. And suddenly they start getting strange dreams and strange messages and stuff. And so of course they go to Dr. Rhodes, find out what is going on. And of course, as often happens, he kind of gets in over his head a little bit. Sure. Trying to figure this out because he's one of these, you know, he's a detective hero. So mm-hmm. you put him on a case, he's going to stick to the case. Even when people are telling him to stop and threatening yeah. his life and stuff, he is not going to give up because he's got to know. Cause mm-hmm. the knowing is the thing, the knowledge, the solving of the issue is the thing.
0: And I and, mean, I hate to spoil the ending, but the way the whole situation is resolved, I just thought was riveting.
1: It was, I remember watching this particular episode when it first aired and being kind of like riveted by it. And blown away by it and it demands like a lot of the shows did back then it kind of demands you pay attention to it
0: yeah oh it's yeah it's not
1: something you can watch in the background as easily because they'll stop talking and suddenly you'll start getting images on the screen that are telling you the story
0: yeah the, and the water the close up of them. the water drops just like
1: right you, you know you have to chilling. pay attention to the pieces of the puzzle yeah or you won't you won't get it. Some people might say because it's you know a 70 show and they're all 50 minutes long that it. Some people might say it's slow or it's boring, but I don't think so. I think it it builds its suspense up to a mm-hmm. a pretty amazing climax for this show. Oh and, yeah, and I, I really enjoyed it. It's it's about sol- puzzle solving, detective work, as I said earlier. It's all about putting the clues together and figuring out what happened.
0: And there's some real world stuff, stuff happening. That he's investigating, you know, along the way, you know, the, the how how somebody got out of the Viet Cong prison camp, how did that work? How did that happen? Well, you know, that's great and all, but let's also talk about the visions that the guy's seeing, and was he really hit in the head like the guy said, or is he not really dead? And just man, right? It's uh, the little moments, little moments, the water drops, and when Doctor Rhodes looks at the photograph, oh. Mm-hmm. That that was awesome. You know, I I put the spoiler warning in, so I don't. Whatever. There's a moment there. He's told the narrative is the guy was killed in Vietnam, and he was like hit in the head. Is that what the friend is saying the whole time? Yeah.
1: While well, while a prisoner of war, he was he was killed in a prisoner of war camp, from which his best friend escaped.
0: Right. So there's a photo of the quote-unquote dead POW that Dr. Rhodes looks at, and he looks away, and he looks back at it, and suddenly there's this blood spot right in the middle of the guy's torso. And he looks at it, and then we get a close-up of Dr. Rhodes' eyes, and then it goes away the next time we see it. Just this kind of moment, this flash. Well, that narrative doesn't fit with what we're being told about how he was killed in the prison camp. So now there's all this question about what what really did happen.
1: And we trust what Dr. Rhodes sees is somehow related to the mystery he's trying to solve. yep. Even if it doesn't fit the narrative that he's being told. Because he's really psychic. He's not cold reading you. He's not making guesses. What he sees is relevant somehow. If only he can make the pieces. Uh,
0: Another thing that I really like about this episode is it starts with automatic writing.
1: In Chinese
0: with the other hand, while the other, while she's writing a letter, her other hand, her less dominant hand reaches over and starts writing in Chinese while she's writing in English. It's amazing.
1: And it's, and it's actually a single shot. Yeah. Someone that they got that actually could do this, that could write normally with their right hand and write in Chinese simultaneously
0: with their left hand. This is not a special effect. The, in, and there are yeah, people out there that can do
1: this kind of stuff. It's sure. always kind of mind. So, this is but it's still, it's this
0: show so much. It's because it's it's so, for lack of a better term, real. These things are right. happening. This isn't somebody went in and CG'd in somebody's hand doing this. This is an actress who is doing this for us on camera. It's right. amazing.
1: And I'm not sure it was Belinda Montgomery doing the doing the writing. I think chances are that they had someone. Oh uh, sure. shot Double that do that. But it's not yeah. it's not something that's done with trick photography, other than right. you know using a stunt double, uh, handwriting double, which yep. happened in the movies all the time. Yeah, I mean there was <laughs> there I was mean, a, a second
0: or third unit would go in and do this stuff, and you know, or a special effects unit, and
1: right. Some of you people know that my son works on has worked on TV shows as a, as a a, a PA, or a production assistant, and other things. And one of the shows he worked on was uh, Utopia, which sadly is about a pandemic and came out right at the start of pandemic. It's a really good show, but it only made it one season, but in one of the trailers for utopia, they needed one of the main characters, some handwriting or something from one of the main characters and the, the person that wasn't there. So my son actually did the hand doubling for this scene in the trailer on the day. So that this happens all the time in Hollywood, but, but the point is that there's someone real doing that. And there are people that have, they're able to do crazy things like that. Tim Truman, comic book artist, Tim Truman told me that there was someone he had met and I don't remember who it was. I think it was a Filipino artist. Tim went to the Kubert school to learn cartooning and graphic arts to learn how to make comics. And there was someone that Joe Kubert had brought in from, I think it was one of the Filipino artists who could draw pencil with one hand and then ink with the other hand simultaneously. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he would like start one corner of the panel, draw ink, draw ink, and just with both hands keep doing it. So the people have trained themselves to have kind of extraordinary abilities like that. And it works so well in a show about, about psychic powers. Because the you know, the Tina Norris character played by Belinda Montgomery, who you've probably seen in, in plenty of seventies TV shows, she's like, I'm not left handed. I can't write with my left hand. Never and I don't even know Chinese. And you're like, yep. oh, that's cool. We saw someone do, we saw someone actually do that on camera. Yeah. So it just adds to the reality of the thing. And that's why I it said, it, you know, every time I watch this, I think if psychic powers were real and someone had them, this is what it would be like. Yep. And every show feels that way. I
0: to don't me. want to spoil a lot of it. Um, but, but I do want to say that, and you see this right off the bat happening. Not only are the, uh, the visuals happening on screen, it, it's real. The edits are very well done when Dr. Rhodes gets shanked in a vision, they cut immediately to him getting hit in the stomach in reality, and the the transition is so well done. It's like you you almost can't tell did he really just get stabbed in in present day? in reality now or, or what happened there? I mean, it's so well done that you question right. for a moment and it's just, it's wonderful.
1: Right. And that brings up something that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about in the second show in that his, his gift also puts him in danger. Yes. In actual, sometimes in actual physical danger, sometimes not because the people that he's working against are out to get him, which happens obviously at times, but also because he can get so wrapped up in one of his visions that things can go badly wrong around him.
0: Oh yeah. It takes a toll. God, it gives it another edge.
1: In the second story, there is a point where he's trying to have a vision. He's trying to focus on, on an object that he's reading and the building around him literally catches fire.
0: Oh God. Okay. (laughs) That, that whole sequence and, and sure. Gary Collins went to the, Star Trek school of how to act like the building around you is shaking and you got to throw yourself around or whatever. But the set itself is on fire, the walls are moving. One of the walls has the fireplace and it's on fire and it's moving. He's crashing through furniture, he's he's throwing himself into it with gusto. But
1: but through the first part of it, he's just standing there looking at this thing in his hand. Yeah. As the fire gets closer and closer to him, yeah. and we realize that he's so caught up in his psychic vision that he's lost track of the real world. He doesn't realize that yeah, stay buried, uh, and that he is he is in serious danger of being killed just by using by using his gift, by using yep. his powers. There is there are drawbacks to this. The, one of the drawbacks is that you can sometimes feel the physical effects, and the other another drawback is that sometimes. You lose track of what's going on in the real world, and that can be potentially fatal.
0: I, I love the I love that room that is shaking all around him, and it's a full long shot. It's not let's do a close up and we shake something in the background. It's like you're looking at a set, and every wall is shaking in different yeah, ways. Yeah, they've rigged
1: a set in, in oh. which the wall, all the walls actually move. It's not just a camera tilt, trick. including the wall with the
0: fireplace. That's what got yeah. me. The fireplace wall is shaking uncontrollably. That's not cool, man. (laughs) That That was was amazing. And it's Gary Collins. You can tell it's Gary Collins because every time he hits the ground, his head turns in such a way that he's looking toward the camera. So you know it's not some dude in a wig. It's not, again, going back to Star Trek, shot from above, a bird's eye view, and you can't really tell whose face is what. He's looking at the camera. You can see it's him, and I love that.
1: Right. (laughs) Right. And it's... It's just part of the reality of the show uh-huh. the part of part of the things that make the show seem really believable. And I'm sure that there are many people who believe in in ESP or came to believe in ESP partly because the show presents it in such a, you know, a <laughs> quote unquote, quote, hey, I realistic
0: wonder. manner. Yeah, I wonder.
1: So in the second one, it starts off with him doing a psychometric reading Mm-hmm. of objects at a college less lecture, which is apparently one of the things he does. And he, you know, he's really good at it. It's, it's kind of one of the, if you've seen the old carnival Barker sham fil- films, it's a situation where someone will hold up a watch and, and say, oh, tell me about this watch except they're not doing it that way people have just left the objects on this table for him to to pick up and tell him what he what he reads off them and again it seems very real and very routine and it's even the even james randy would have trouble debunking (laughs) what he's doing here right as he picks up these things right and one while he's like not watching which is when all these things are laid out a woman sle- sneaks into the room and leaves a scalpel on the table and at first i thought oh my god she's gonna stab him it's only episode two.
0: <laughs> first time i saw this episode I-, I saw that i'm like uh is dr rhodes about to get <laughs> she's
1: about to get killed but <laughs> what, no she's happening? left the scalpel for him to read and he ends up getting uh Uh, a number of psychic visions from this thing, which leads him into then becoming involved with, with her and her, I guess they're her family, but she's kind of estranged from them. Um, the family dynamics are a little,
0: yeah, it's a little unclear for a long part of the big part of the episode.
1: Right. With a strange, uh, a surgeon and his strange family in which the surgeon is convinced that uh, his uh, daughter-in-law is trying to kill him, uh, who's the one that snuck the scalpel in. And the, he has kind of weird relatives. And it's, in some ways, it's got a little bit of an old dark house feel
0: to this episode. This episode feels very like confined to that location. Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's not completely, because he does go to this other building, which is then burned down and stuff.
0: But right. And it's a hospital scene, but a lot of it takes place. Yeah.
1: And it also reminded me of um, Night of the Eagle slash Burn Witch Burn. Yes.
0: Yes. In place, Which is a great film. I love that film.
1: Yep. Yeah, it is a great film. Except, you know, uh, instead of witches, we have psychics.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: who's the psychic? And who is, you know is, is there another psychic force in this house that's trying to kill him or are these people trying to kill each other? And he has to sort out who is, who is doing what to whom and why, why is kind of always a big question in the, in these ESP things. It's like what happened and why it happened. And
0: with this episode too, what I really like is that there is an event that happens that is presented initially as this is some sort of psychic phenomenon. And then when we come back from what would I assume would be a commercial break, we realize no, it, it's not, and that's okay. Nobody's insisting that oh, it was psychic. Come on, it was real. It was really psychic, you know. No, it's just it's one of those things where you are investigating not just the psychic phenomena, but now we have to see what is really happening in the non-psychic world and put that part together too, and that it all comes together. And I love that.
1: Right. And what people what are, people are happening that are perceiving is a psychic or supernatural phenomena that may not actually be, that may be their warped perception or maybe someone else warping their perception. I
0: meant to write down this, this line. So I have to paraphrase cause I didn't write it down. But one of my favorite lines in, in the entire run of the series is when Nancy is telling Dr. Rhodes, I don't know if it's okay for us to be in these, this person's house stooping through their library. And Dr. Rhodes' response is something along the lines of, somebody in this house has been intruding into my mind. I think it's okay if I'm in their library. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and it's not delivered as like a funny ha-ha. It's just a line. Yeah. Now, this episode also has one of my favorite images of the entire run. And it's after he fishes a book out of a fireplace and he's sitting down reading the book and it's still smoldering and smoking in his (laughs) hand as he's turning pages, reading the book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those things, you you know, people throw books in fireplaces and stories a lot in movies and television shows. And you very seldom see someone rescue it. And then, you know, before it's really destroyed and, you know, make an effort to go pick it out of the fireplace. And then he not only does it, he actually uses it uh, to further further his research. Beats
0: off the smoke or whatever, kind of brushes off whatever, sits down at the table in the same room and just starts leafing through the book. And that's something else about this entire series that I love. Books are important. This is an era where we don't have internet. So obviously, obviously, you know, all the world's knowledge is in books and books become very important. And that really stokes the, uh, part of my i don't know storytelling is like you know knowledge is in books forbidden knowledge can be in books and if you just read between the lines maybe there's something in the margin that you know will reveal all you know and it kind of i'm not going to say necronomicon or anything like that but i just love right. the idea that there are there are things in books that are important are powerful and sometimes dangerous and that's amazing to me i love that idea
1: yeah, me too. And and you just said the word Stokes in relationship to that. And that, of course, made mm-hmm. me think of Professor Stokes on Dark Shadows, who's hey, also there you go. a book researcher. I was like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> but there you go. yeah, the, the other thing that we should mention is that Gary Collins is he's a man of action, but he's not a really tough guy. But he's a very principled guy. So there are points in this series where, well, he'll stick his hand into a fireplace <laughs> to get a book out <laughs> or, you know, he'll stand between. Someone that's trying to attack someone else, yep. you know, because it's, even though that's dangerous, because he's not Indiana Jones, he can throw a punch and he can take a punch, but not too many. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he's still gonna fall down the stairs. You know, he's, still he's still gonna tumble down the stairs. I mean, he's
1: still well. He's willing to put himself at risk for other people, physically as well as psychically And I, that's, even again, he's
0: warned off, even when the woman tells him, "You sure you want to stick around? You should probably leave before it's too late," Doctor Rhodes. I mean, she's like, yeah, I'm here. We're, we're fixing the problem. You know, I'm not, you know.
1: One of these, I can't walk away from it now. Yep. I'm in too deep. And yep. that's one of the things that makes the, the series and this character so compelling. It's really sad to me that Gary Collins is so good at this. And he really didn't do anything else vaguely like it that I know of. I would could have watched this guy through six or seven seasons easily. If they could have kept the writing up at the at the top level of writing that they had true, on these
0: true yeah
1: and there's yeah. you always have to wonder about that because these are the days when you had to do 26 episodes for a full season and i think six cents was a mid-season replacement maybe and had a short first season and then another short second season so if they're all wonderful and as i said i haven't gotten to the end of the second season yet and they may be it still could have been really hard to maintain that that level of writing, and you see this in Star Trek, in, during the I like the third season of Star Trek. There are a lot of good shows. So do it. I. But you can see there's a drop off in writing from the second to the third season.
0: There's a drop off of a lot of things between the second and the third right. season.
1: Well, they they start they were giving them less money and stuff, and you exactly. know it's like writers don't cost much money, but they do cost money.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: and and uh, as anyone that's ever produced a a good low budget film will tell you the writing is the key thing. And for television shows, the writing is definitely the key thing. So whether they could have sustained it, I don't know. But as it is, we get these kind of two legendary short seasons, 13
0: episodes uh, in the first season and about as many in the second.
1: Yep. Those are oh. both half seasons. Yes. Yeah, so you so. got
0: 25 episodes, 26. If you count that TV movie, there were two novelizations, kind of. Now, I, I oh, have cool. around here somewhere. Um, neat. Well, not novelization, but like novel tie The first book is called Witch, Witch, Burning Bright, which is really just a transcript of the screenplay for the show. Okay. Got, I mean, which is kind of neat. But apparently, Marion Zimmer Bradley wrote the second book called oh, cool. In the Steps of the Master, which I would love to get my hands
1: on. It would be so nice if they... In this day of digital publishing, if someone could get a hold of these things and just put them out there, it costs virtually nothing aside from whatever it takes to scan them in, and you can pay someone at, at Office Max to do that. <laughs> It'd be nice if we could have more of these kind of the old tie-ins. but then the licensing is probably difficult. Oh, which that is would, crazy. It which would you know could kind of bring us into a, a long discussion about copyright and how. I am Ah uh, here we go. <laughs> I am against large corporations being able to hold on to copyrights for things that they don't use. Yep. I I think that is uh, well, it's not good for the artists that did the work and it's not good for the properties either. But nothing I can do about that. So there you go. That's my rent. No more
0: so... <laughs> So, speaking of who's got the rights and all that, the only way to see this legally, officially, is to have a region-free DVD player and to order it from France. Don't know why it's available in France, but it is.
1: Which is what Derek did. Someone found it and sent it sent to you, Sent it right? to me.
0: Yeah, I still don't know who.
1: And then you had it, and I'm like, where did you get this thing? And you were like, I got it. It came from France, and I was like, "Really?" And you are like, "Yeah, France." And I went on to Amazon France, which now sends me emails that I can't read because they're all in French. Right. Every now and again, I went to Amazon France, and I paid about seventy bucks to get it shipped to the oh, from wow. France to the USA. It may even be a region zero rather than a French region, but it still costs about seventy bucks to get it here from there. But when I got it, I was like. Oh, I could see this thing that I've never seen since I was a you know, kid. No, you're
0: right. Uh, according to DVDcompare.net, uh, it is a region zero release, which means you don't have to have a region-free DVD player to play it. Yeah, you just uh, have
1: to have the money. <laughs>
0: yeah. Now, there's nothing special about the DVDs in terms of special features. Uh, there's yeah, nothing there. Not much. You know, unless you're a French speaker, only six episodes have been dubbed into French. But otherwise, <laughs> you know. Right, but uh, you can um,
1: turn off the French subtitles on all of them.
0: Yeah, you can. Real easy. And for some reason or other, one of the discs has an episode of a show called Earth 2 Project Eden. Hmm. Don't know why. It just does.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I noticed that, too. And I I didn't have time to go back and watch it. I started and I was like, well, this is strange. Yeah. But I haven't had time to go back and watch it. I'd forgotten about that. You can get it
0: that way. I would like to come back and revisit this at some point, uh, especially since the next two episodes. John Badham directed Episode 3 and Richard Donner directed Episode 4.
1: There you go. Oh, we can do that because I know that you love the ne- the next episode and the thing. And it's the one with John Saxon. And, and the John Saxon
0: episode is one of my favorites.
1: We baby skirted around this, but the cast, the, the supporting players you're going to see in this every week are, mm-hmm. again, like many of the great 70 shows, they are like the ABC of Hollywood supporting players. You will recognize two thirds of the people you see and you'll go, oh, yeah, that's her from this and that's him from that. Yep. Yeah. Even, or you'll know that you've seen them before on other shows, even if you don't recognize who they are and where they're from. Sometimes it's really odd. You know, you get to John Saxon, you're like, hey, that's John Saxon. Yeah, hey, that's exactly. exactly. But there yeah. are other ones that you're like, oh, I know who that, who is that? I know that person. So they're all kind of Hollywood A list TV players.
0: The first episode is directed by a guy by the name of, uh, I just had it, Alf. Sheldon, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but I'm looking and he directed a handful of episodes of Mannix, which you were just saying a second yeah. ago you really like. so.
1: Oh, I love Mannix. Mannix is one of the best cop detective shows ever. I
0: love Mannix. Uh, but yeah, to go back to the cast, uh, you got Leif Erickson in the second episode. I don't mm-hmm. know how cool is that. Um, and I'm trying to remember where I saw, saw her from, where I know her from. Uh, Jessica Belinda Walter? Mo- no, Belinda Montgomery from the first episode.
1: Right, yeah, I looked her up too. I thought
0: she's a Doogie's mom from Doogie Hauser. There, there you go. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right.
1: Yeah, there, there are a lot of people like that that went on to have real, real yeah. careers. You will recognize some of them as supporting players from Star Trek. Oh certainly. yeah. Yep. And you'll, you'll you'll know these people from, you know, whether it's Star Trek or Happy Days or whatever the heck it is.
0: Maddox. Uh, you know, I mean, you're going to find all this, these connections to 70s TV. And it's just awesome.
1: You're going to dig it. If, if you love 70s actors, 60s and 70s actors, they're all here. They're all here. Which is one of the wonderful things about this show. Again, it's a top-notch TV production. It is not some little, you know show destined for syndication or something like that. This is, they were putting all the powers that they had as a studio behind these shows when they were doing them. So until they started cutting the budgets or whatever, but when they started out, they're like, Hey, this could be another big hit. Let's go. Let's get all our a list.
0: I, I highly recommend this uh, the series. Steven, I will talk more about it. I'd like to know if you've seen the show and if you have, please leave comments down below in the YouTube video version of the show leave a comment on the blog version of the show or just send in some feedback and I'll have the monsters in the machine, read the feedback contact information here in a little bit. So yep. I would love to know if you've seen the show, if this has motivated you to, to see the show, I'd love to know what you think now because I love it. And uh, Steve loves it. And yeah, I wish there was more it a lot. shine on this show.
1: I loved it enough to spend a bunch of money to get it sent from France for 20 episodes or whatever it is.
0: There you go. So
1: when I got a, it totally felt worth it to me. Totally worth it. So yeah, let us know what you think,
0: Steve. Thank you for joining me for this, uh, for this weird experimental episode where we actually share it with the Twitch stream live. Uh, we still have three viewers. So thanks for sticking around.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All three of you, whoever you are, even if two of you are bots. So
0: Steve, I'm going to end the stream here in a second. So, uh, everybody say goodbye to Steve. Good night, everybody. There we go. And then we're going to end the recording as well. Thank you, Steve.
1: Signing off.
3: You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's monsterkidradio at gmail.com.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Huge thanks to Stephen D. Sullivan, to Kenny, to Mark Matsky, to High Tide Records, and to you, dear listener, for hanging out with us here on Monster Kid Radio as I gush and try to contain myself while Steve gushes about The Sixth Sense. I appreciate everybody's support, everybody following along with what I'm up to over on Facebook or Twitter or Reddit or Patreon or Discord or um, anywhere else I happen to be online. I just want to thank everybody for everybody's support, for retweeting tweets, sharing posts, and just spreading the word about Monster Kid Radio or being in touch with me personally. I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you. Everything that we've talked about on this week's show, you're going to find in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that I just mentioned. So make sure you check that out. Also over there, you're going to find links to our Twitch channel on Christmas Day, which actually is probably when you are listening to this If you listen to the episode when it first comes out, we are going to be looping a whole bunch of Christmas movies all day on Saturday. It's going to go throughout the entire day, probably a little bit into Sunday morning. It's a little bit different in terms of how the stream is normally constructed. I'm not going to be there. Well, I mean, I will be there. I'll be checking out the chat throughout the day, but you're not going to see me a lot. You know what? Bottom line is. You know, I can't think of any way to be more monstrously festive on Christmas than to watch movies like 1959's Santa Claus, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, The Magic Christmas Tree, and Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny, as well as a few other things kind of thrown in there to fill in some spaces between films. It's just going to be fun over at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Make sure you come by and spend some time over there. There's not a schedule. It's just going to be on a loop and it's going to be fun. So feel free to drop by and check that out. It's free. Maybe put that on between, uh, I don't know, sessions of watching the video of uh, like a Yule log burning in a fireplace or something. I I don't know. Anyway, that's what's coming up on Saturday on the stream. Not really sure what's happening on Tuesday yet, but I have a few ideas. So make sure you come back to the stream for that. What's coming up on next week's episode of Monster Kid Radio? Well, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm probably going to go a little off script or off format a little bit, but there will be an episode next week. I'm going to do my best to get it out sometime on Thursday or Friday. It's going to be a year in review of Monster Kid Radio. I'm going to reach out to various contributors to Monster Kid Radio and see if they'd like to contribute anything to that episode. So stay tuned for that. Just make sure you come back to monsterkidradio.net next week or stay subscribed to the podcast or the YouTube channel and you'll get the new episode as soon as it comes out. I mentioned High Tide Recording earlier. Like I said at the top, they really hooked us up. They gave us permission to play a lot of music from their label on the show in order of appearance. We heard the opening song, Here We Come a-Wassling, from the Volcanics. We then heard Angels We Have Heard on High from the Aqualads. Then we heard It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas from Joel Patterson. And then finally, we had Merry Christmas. He a filthy animal from the black flamingos. Well here, here we come a-wassling again here in a second. As soon as I let you know that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, none of that applies to any of the music that we played. That is all copyright, the respective bands, and again provided by high tide recordings. My name is Derek M. Cook. Happy holidays to all of you. Talk to you next week. Ciao.